All right, I'm here with uh, Ryan Rushton and then Tyler Douglas, uh, our, our Chief Information Officer at M- uh, Ensign Services and, and uh, less commonly known, the first receptionist at this organization, I don't know, 19 years ago, right? 20 yeah, years almost, ago? almost 19 years ago. So uh, it's exciting to, uh, I, I love telling that story because uh, it just lets you know all the opportunities that are, are here with us. Tyler and Ryan, I want to spend some time talking with you guys about uh, a Lencioni concept. Uh, one of the books that he writes is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And I know, I know in your departments that uh, you guys have put a lot of focus on five dysfunctions of a team, and, and rightfully so. But I want to start with a concept. It's another Lencioni concept, and it's from a book uh, called The Advantage. And in the book, The Advantage, he asks the question, if you have two different teams, and one team is full of just brilliant, top-of-the-class, A-student people, but they are organizationally unhealthy. Maybe there's backbiting, there's no trust, there's other things, you know, you have all sorts of other issues that that, that uh, would cause problems with a team. And you have team B that is maybe your mediocre students, but they are healthy organizationally. They trust each other. They, they work to improve. The question he asks is, which team would you want? And hands down, the response is always, I want the organizationally healthy team. And I, th- I think we as organizations believe that. But when we think it through, uh, we realize that organizational health will either chew up and spit out our best people or they will enhance our best people. But when we think it through, do we spend enough time developing organizational health? And and I think the common answer is no. I'm, I'm curious as to why you guys think that may be. You know, it's a great question. And one of the things that, that I think scares people a little bit is if they have someone who they think is a genius or is, is so far above everyone else but struggles culturally, that, that they're going to be missing out. On on what that person has to offer, so they sort of deal with it, right? They, they let do, them go yeah, because yeah. they they think that that they make up for it in other ways. But I think one of the things that that you forget, and one of the things that I, I think we've seen, you know, in the IT team is is making sure that that we only have culturally healthy people there. Mm-hmm. And if if they're not, then then we probably need to help them find a, a different opportunity. So that's even if be you have somebody that's brilliant in their job, if they don't fit with the culture you will make the change? No, absolutely, because you are not going to find lasting results unless you have mm. great culture. It, it, the, the great culture is what the, is the precursor to, to great lasting results. So that's the power of a team. And, and you know, we, we talk about it. We say we believe in it. We always we give the example of the sticks. You can break one stick on its own, but if you put a bunch of sticks together, you can't break them because a, a team is more solid. Actually, one of the one of the training videos that I like that's on the portal is, I think it's called Battle at Kruger, and it's the power of, of a team or of a cluster, really, really, uh, you know, the, the model that we espouse so much. And it's a bunch of, I think they're water buffalo, and, and they get uh, a baby water buffalo gets taken down by some lions and, you know, the predator gets the prey. But then you see the, the family, the cluster of water buffalo uniting and they come back and they actually defeat the predator because they recognize the value of a team. And you just see in nature, you see in natural laws that there is a power of a team. There, there is a synergy that happens when you, when you have functional teams. So let's go through the five dysfunctions of a team and... and 
talk about kind of the battles that, that you've gone through to overcome each. And, and the first is, is one that he calls absence of trust. And he says this, he says, members of great teams trust one another enough to be vulnerable with each other about their weaknesses, mistakes, fears, and behaviors without fear of reprisal. So they'll be vulnerable and they know that they can be vulnerable and that they won't puni- be punished for, for being vulnerable. Can, can either of you guys talk to me about, about this one, this absence of trust? You know, one of the things that Lencioni says that I think really is insightful on this is the key ingredient to building trust is not time, it's courage. So for a team to establish real trust, they must be willing to be vulnerable without knowing whether that vulnerability will be respected or reciprocated. And it's interesting, one of the things that, that I've seen is, as you have new people join your organization is that they're a little bit programmed to not be vulnerable. That's, that's what they're taught out there. And even though you know, we say, okay, a team has to have trust and it seems so common and, and, and so easy to understand, but we don't actually do it. Because in practice, over and over again, in, in organizations across the world, they teach their people that by the, the actions, that they're not really allowed to be vulnerable. So how might we discourage vulnerability? I, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but how, 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 can you think of ways where, you know, we say no idea is a bad idea or, or, or let us know if you've made a mistake early. What, how might we discourage people from being vulnerable without realizing it? You know, I think the way that we react to it, a lot of times, if we use it as a great teaching moment where it's a positive interaction where we say, you know, let's let's talk through that. Let's let's have that concept of the autopsy without blame where we want to find what the root is, but we're not interested in assigning fault to it. I think the more you can do that and the more people see that, that's when they really buy into the culture because coming into it, they don't they'll listen to what you have to say, but they don't necessarily believe it until they see how you act. Yeah, and I, and I think they'll also have to see examples of it from, you know, certainly a, in a leadership position to show mm-hmm. your own vulnerability to the people on the team and, and to really do it in an open way, I think, does help to build some of that, that, that courage that people need to be vulnerable for probably the first time in their professional careers to truly be vulnerable. Do you think a leader can be too vulnerable? You know, I, I don't think a leader can be, be too vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I, I think the more that, that they are just open and honest with their team, the team respects that. And, and so I don't, I don't think you can be. Yeah, as long as it's genuine and coming from the right place, I think people will see that. So if we know, and maybe this is a rhetorical question, I don't know, maybe you do have an answer to it, but if we know that people love vulnerability in their leaders, right, we get that. We, 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 we are drawn to people that are vulnerable. Why are we so hesitant to be vulnerable if we know that to be true? I think it's not in our human DNA. I, I think we're designed to not be vulnerable. I mean, if you go back to the whole predator versus prey, we are not designed. It's uncomfortable to be vulnerable. And so it's an active decision that, that you have to make on a daily basis. No matter how long you've been doing this and no matter how good you are at being vulnerable, you have to actively choose on a daily basis to be vulnerable. Oh. Yeah, it's it's an interesting concept because I, I do. I, I always appreciate leaders that when I see them coming in and saying, hey, guys, I made a mistake. And I think, oh, that's okay. <laughs> like, we can have this conversation. And, 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 and the wound is exposed. And, and that's how it's able to heal. And, and, and then I realize, hey, I can come to the team and say, hey, I've made a mistake without fear of reprisal. And, and it feels like I'm now creating and opening up that trust. And it is, it's, a, it's a simple concept. It's a brilliant concept. And, and yet, it's hard. It's very hard in practice. It's yeah. Very hard. Trying to figure out how we become. Okay. All right. So, so we struggle to trust each other as we should. 
That's that, we've got that. Dysfunction number one. We struggle to trust each other as we should. Talk to me about what dysfunction this leads to. So actually, I want to go back first, because I think there's one key point to what you have to do to really start overcoming that that absence of trust. And one of the things that I use is is I've worked with, you know, different individuals in the organization and kind of talked through these principles with them. There's a foundational concept that I believe that that you have to address, and it's it's not... Uh, filling in the gap, assuming someone else's atten- intentions. So when you look... What do you mean by that? So w- going back, and I don't want to go off on a tangent with another okay. another concept, but, but in leadership and self-deception, mm-hmm. one of the core concepts in there is really about how you, how you view people and how you engage with people. Mm-hmm. And I think reading that book, a lot of times as I look at so, you know, individuals who are maybe struggling a little bit culturally... That's my go-to foundation book that I'll have them go in and read and we'll go through and discuss it. And once they understand how they really should be viewing people, those around them, their coworkers, then it really opens up the discussion for us to be able to build on, on this concept of five dysfunctions of a team. So it's basically, is it the stories you tell yourself about that yeah, person? The, the, the intentions that you start presuming that they're working off of, okay. right? And instead of just, you know, looking at, at the actual situation and, and dealing with it, you start telling stories, like you said, about maybe what their intention is. Stories that rile yourself and, up, and then, as opposed to making you more empathetic correct. of the of the person. Correct. Okay. All right. Sorry. No, that's that's good. I'm glad you you threw that in. Okay. So let's go to dysfunction number two then. Dysfunction number one, we we lack the trust that we need. What's dysfunction number two? So the the next dysfunction is is fear of conflict, and it, it's another one of those uncomfortable areas. Most people don't like conflict, but for really us to get to the the best possible outcome, we have to have that passionate dialogue. We have to disagree with people. We have to challenge others' views and make sure that that our voice is heard. The 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 concept of of really getting into a a passionate discussion about the best possible outcome, I think it's something that we should all strive for. But I think sometimes we we make that calculation in our head of you know, it's not worth it. I'm, I'm not going to bring it up. I'm just going to let this one go. And I think we miss out on a lot of good opportunities to get a better outcome. But what if you're not even sure? So, so here's the situation I've been in. So I'm sitting in a meeting and I kind of want to bring something up, but frankly, I'm not even confident that my idea is right. So I think, well, if it were the right idea, somebody else would probably think of it too. Nobody has thought of it. So I'm just going to stay quiet. Hmm. How do I overcome that? <laughs> You know, it, it, it's, I think, something where sometimes you get into this, this, I guess, thought process of let's just have a consensus. Okay. Let's just, everyone should agree. And if, you know, if the group kind of feels like they're going that way, I should go that way too. I don't want to stand uh-huh. out or, or, or expose myself. But the reality is you've got to, there always should be someone offering a contrary opinion. Even if I'm wrong. Absolutely. Because it's going to require those in the room to think about what that opinion is. Even if you don't buy into it or believe it, that they're going to think about it from a different perspective. And you may still come up with with the same path, and this is the approach that we're going to take. But you have to... You have to explore all those options, and I think you're you're not doing yourself or your team it's you know justice if you're not taking that that contrarian view. Yeah. I've had it where I've been in a team meeting and and everyone seemed to agree, and, and a couple of things that I've done. One, I assigned three people to play devil's advocate, 
to, to disagree. To disagree. And I said, this is the stance you have to take. And then I've done something where I've, where I've said, okay, now I'm going to switch it. Now you're going to take the other side. I've assigned them to take the other side of what they actually believed just to kind of stir up kind of this debate because I, I agree with you. I, I, think, uh, I think even the wrong opinion debated well can give backbone to, to the right idea. So let me, let me ask, can I, I'm going to try and restate this and, and correct me if I'm wrong. A great leader then fosters this kind of debate until a consensus is reached. I don't know that a consensus is ever going to be reached. Okay. I don't think the goal is. So the goal is not consensus. consensus. No, I think it's to have it's to have great debate and conflict and differing opinions, so that ultimately together you can, you know, find one that has the right answer because it's of all of the the you know vetting that was done and conversation that was had and debate that was had that you're you're you know. You're not trying to convince everybody. You're trying to flush the ideas out and as a group come up with the, the majority yeah. or the right decision, but not okay. consensus. You know, one of the things Lencioni actually says about consensus is sometimes if, if, if you've reached consensus, you've probably waited too long to make that decision. Hmm. Because, I mean, is that is that sometimes just a weakness of a leader that, that you're almost looking to hide behind consensus instead of – I'm, I'm, I'm curious because I, I think – I think sometimes we as leaders feel like that's our job is to develop that consensus. <laughs> to get consensus right? and then move forward. Yeah. Well, but just because you don't have consensus doesn't mean people aren't going to buy into what you're doing. Uh -huh. If you give them that opportunity to weigh in, and, and you've got to demand that they weigh in, and that's a strong word to use the word demand. But if you have a member of a team, they, yeah. you've got to demand that they're going to weigh in on, on what you guys are talking about because that's the only way you're going to get them to, to buy in down the road for, for what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and I like, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to our, our uh, Having More Effective Meetings podcast. And one of the things that we talk about in that podcast is, is in meetings, we need to take off our job hats. We need to speak up when we have something to say, whether or not it has to do with what our, what our title or our job hat says that we, we uh, are in charge of. And so I like the idea of, of just fostering that debate, making sure everyone's heard, uh, we talk a lot about the, you know, these victims' impact statements and, and how, how when people are heard, they no longer feel like victims. Even if you don't go with, with their ideas, I, I just love that concept that, uh, that being listened to releases people from that feeling of, uh, of victimhood. Okay, so that's all great and dandy. But here's the reality. I can think of myself in school. I can think of myself in meetings. I can think of myself in many different social situations where I held the contrarian opinion to the group and I was afraid to speak up. Like that's a scary thing to do. And especially if my title is, is what others would consider a lesser title it's just, even frankly, if I'm with cohorts and I, and I seem to have a minority opinion, it's just scary to speak up. What and do I, I do? See, and I think that's where the, the leader really has to set the table and, and kind of get back to that concept of, of demanding that, that you weigh in. I think if whoever is running that meeting or that interaction or, or that team, if they are, are truly setting the table so that everyone feels like they have a seat, that their voice is being heard, it, it's going to alleviate some of that. And, and I think the other thing is really being able to foster what I would call good conflict. 
that there's this concept of, of good conflict versus bad conflict. Now, when I look at what good conflict is, that really, for me, that's the... So we're not just saying we're trying to get everybody to fight. There's a good conflict. All right, help, help yeah. clarify that for me. So a good, good conflict is the pursuit of the best possible outcome. I mean, hands down, that's if if we are having a conflict or a disagreement, but we're both invested in the best possible outcome for the team or for the group or for the organization, that's going to make sure that it's a healthy interaction. When you look at bad conflict, I would describe that as politics. When you're talking about I'm, I'm trying to work some scheme or cover my back or, or whatever that is, that... that if you're both focused on the best possible outcome, that's the good, healthy conflict that we're looking for. So, so ego is almost the difference. Yeah, no, that's a great two, way to right? put it. Where, where if you check your ego at the door and are pursuing the best possible outcome, any conflict involved in, in yeah. trying to obtain that is... You're not just trying to be right, and you're not just trying to convince other people of your opinion, yeah. but, but truly trying to get to the, to the, to the best possible outcome. I, I love that. Checking ego at the door can be hard, though, right? It can <laughs> that's, be. It's not an easy thing to do, but uh, I, yeah, I, I, I think that's good. I also think trust is a part of that at the foundation. If, if you have a team that's, that's built that trust together, then it becomes a lot easier to speak out and disagree. So it makes sense that that's the predecessor uh, uh, dysfunction. Okay, so we don't trust each other enough, dysfunction one to disagree with each other enough, dysfunction two, what, what does that lead to? So dysfunction three, we show a lack of commitment to our goals. So how does not enough conflict <laughs> lead to a lack of commitment? How, do the, how are those two tied together? So when you have members of great teams who engage in unfiltered conflict, they're able to achieve that, that genuine buy-in on important decisions. They're looking at all options and all ideas and, and they're putting them on the table and making sure that, that they're being considered, like, like we talked about a few minutes ago. Um, but the reality is, if someone doesn't weigh in, then they're less likely to buy in. And I think that's because there's a lack of ownership. So I may be a member of a team. I'm you know, weighing in on certain things. If I don't weigh in on something, I'm not really acting like an owner. If, if we look at what our, our core values are, ownership's one of our core values. I'm a firm believer that if you're not weighing in, no matter what the, the scenario is or who you're interacting with, if you're not weighing in on your opinion, you're not really being the best owner you can be. You're shirking ownership in yeah. that case. I, I, can, I can picture being in meetings where, where I've maybe disagreed, I have not weighed in, and what happens ineffectively is I leave the meeting and I talk to somebody else. Well, they did this, but I don't agree with that. And, and there's sort of that subtle underlying, uh, and I'm not, I'm not committed to whatever it is they came up with because I never voiced my opinion, which, again, was, was my, my own fault. I'm, I'm what uh, Patrick Lencioni scientifically calls a, a wuss as well and uh, <laughs> not, not willing to speak up in some of those things. Um, so, all right, so now anything else you want to add on that on, on to lack of commitment? Okay. So now we don't trust each other enough to debate enough. And so we're not committed enough towards the goal. There's the first three. Now what? Help me with dysfunction number four. All right. Dysfunction number four, we avoid accountability. Okay. So why is that? Why, why does that follow naturally not being committed? Because members of great teams don't hesitate to hold one another accountable for adhering to those decisions or standards that, that you've 
created as a team. They don't rely on the team leader as the primary source of accountability. And, and this is something that, that I've seen a lot of, and I, I've talked with you know a lot of the, the individuals that, that I work with about this whole concept of, of accountability. There's really two types of accountability. There's, there's leader-based accountability where the leader goes in and it, he or she holds their subordinates accountable for what they need they to do. They almost feel like that's their job. Yeah. My job is to hold, hold people accountable. accountable. Yeah. Okay. A much more effective way uh, to to implement accountability is peer-based accountability, and that can be a little bit scary too. Because if you're if you're looking at people coming in from uh, other organizations that, that aren't set up that way, I'm not used to my coworker telling me that I did something wrong or that I should approach things another way. And so one of the things that that while I I would emphasize. That's the goal. You want to get people to hold each other accountable using that peer-based accountability. But like we talked about before, this builds on itself. If you don't have trust, if people haven't weighed in and bought into what you're doing, you can't have that peer-based accountability. This is a process you have to go through. And so you've got to figure out when the right time is to really focus on implementing that, that peer-based accountability. So, so how do you, and I'm putting you on the spot here, and if you don't have a good answer, we can just cut this out and edit it. I love, how, I how, love that. How do, you, how, do you, how do you create, other than saying, hey, okay, hold each other accountable, go do it. How do you get people that, that without a title, as they're used to in typical you know, triangle corporate organizations, how do you say, look, you're all accountable to each other. Now go hold each other accountable. It's not natural. It doesn't feel natural to them. How, how do you create kind of that, that culture of peer accountability? So I, I think the first thing, and you mentioned that, is, is you've got to teach them. You've got to teach them the concept of this is what we're trying to achieve, but help them understand the why. Why is it more effective to, to have that peer-based accountability? And it's going to be it's going to be new for them. There's going to be road bumps along the way. And, and sometimes it means that, you know, I, I'll sit down with, with two people and help them understand how they should hold each other accountable. But I want them to really put everything out on the table. I want them to be vulnerable with each other and to have some conflict. And, and sometimes I'll help guide them as a leader. But my goal is really to, to help them do that a couple times so that when it comes up in the future, they don't need to pull me in. They can just go in and, and have that disagreement and, and that whatever, whatever it is they need to work through and work through it them, themselves. And, and for me, that's, that's what we're shooting for. Yeah, I mm -hmm. mean, it's so counterintuitive to all of your previous jobs that, that, you've, that you've, at least in my experience that I had, that um, it, it does take some pointed conversation to new people joining the organization to really talk about it and highlight it. And, and like Tyler had said, to in all honesty, probably helped them a couple of times the first couple of times that they've had to do it and really um, use those as teaching opportunities so that you know you get them to the goal where they, they are becoming accountable to the point where, for, in my mind, when I think that, the, that somebody's really gotten it is when um, as, me as their leader, they're holding me accountable. Um, some of the best conversation I've ever had and advice I've ever gotten has have come from people that, that I was leading that, that were felt comfortable enough to give me really meaningful feedback. yeah I, I think boy we, we talk about a leader holding accountable they feel like okay that's my job peer accountability is a little bit awkward but but I think understandable I think uh, that's where we really get scared how do you hold your leader accountable right but I we've got to be this way we've got we've got to be housekeepers and CNAs and laundry workers that are holding our administrators accountable this if this is to be your operation 
you need to hold your leaders yeah. accountable and, and leaders need to have that vulnerability where <laughs> others feel clear that they can be held accountable. Hey, you've got to be doing a better job leading us. You've got to help us get to these goals. And boy, if we have, if we have owners in our operations that are doing that, I, I just think how amazingly powerful it could be. And, and kudos to you as a leader for, for establishing, you know, kind of that culture that, that allows that to happen. I, uh, that that almost seems like the pinnacle one to reach, and but the the ultimate the ultimate goal yeah. when you when you think that really effectively holding that's where, that's where you know you have that culture of accountability that's set up. Okay, so now let's walk through the first four. We don't have enough trust. That's number one. That leads us to not having enough conflict. That's number two. That leads us to not being committed enough. That's number three, and that leads us to not holding each other accountable or ourselves accountable enough. So what does that lead us to? What is the fifth dysfunction of a team? So the final dysfunction of a team is inattention to results. And I think that's either because we don't care about the results or because we're being distracted by dealing with the other dysfunctions of, uh, of a team. So why then... I mean, how, so how do we get people to care about results? It almost seems like the leader cares about results and everyone else maybe cares about the results on the leader's behalf for them. They want the leader to do well. How do we get people to care about results as if they were their own results? You know, I, I think you, as you walk through the different dysfunctions, that's really how you do it. I, I've kind of always said, and, and maybe it's the wrong way to think about it, I don't spend a lot of time on the fifth, fifth dysfunction of a team. I feel like because if it's just a natural it's, follow. It's a, yeah, it's a natural follow. If I can get my team to embrace peer accountability, the results are going to follow, and so that's and they'll care about them. <laughs> yeah, presumably. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so when when you've taken that that as your your primary goal, that's what's going to come out of it. Awesome. Well, anything else you guys have to add? Any other final thoughts on, on these five dysfunctions of a team, uh, how you've seen it in your own teams? So in my experience, if we aren't able to overcome the first four dysfunctions, we are spending too much time dealing with the product of those dysfunctions rather than focusing our efforts on the results. Yeah, I, uh, and I, I thank you so much for talking to us about this. I, I feel like but if we can get great teams, we almost we almost don't even know. I, I always used to think that the job of a leader was to create the vision and get a bunch of people to follow after that vision. And, and one of the things that Jim Collins points out, he says a level five leader is great at getting the right people, the right seats on the bus, asking the right questions and fostering a culture of debate and the right people will take you in the right direction and in the right places. And if we have functional teams that trust each other enough, are committed enough, they, there's enough conflict and they're, they're, they're focused on, on these results, uh, it's just amazing the, the great things that we'll be able to accomplish. Thanks you guys for your time. Thank you. Thank you.